Well, we are going to jump back into the prologue of the Gospel of John this morning. I don't know if you noticed last week I was really off track. <laughs> I mean, if you were here, you know that when I first began to read the passage I was going to preach from, it wasn't even the passage I was going to preach from. Uh, but I found myself in bed for the rest of the day. I left here not feeling well. I, had, I don't know if it was a migraine headache, but it was something like that. And, and it was coming on me last Sunday morning. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, hopefully I'll be a little bit more on track this morning than I was, was then. But again, we're dealing with, uh, we're looking at the prologue of the Gospel of John. We're going to be doing a series all the way through this book. This is just the beginning of it. Uh, the prologue is very deep. It's very different. You don't find anything like this in any of the other Gospels. Uh, but it's an introduction to the book, to all that follows behind it. So it's really important for us to get a good handle on what is being, being said here in these, these verses. So I'm going to go ahead and read the whole pro prologue this morning. And then we're going to go back and pick up in uh, verse 6 and move on from there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of, of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from uh, his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We looked at the first five verses last week and, and made note that there's a really a lot of parallelism that goes on between Genesis chapter 1, verse verse 1 and the beginning of this prologue. The prologue is very unique to the Gospels. You know, all the rest of them are really more historical narratives uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, and I think one of the special things that we always have to remember about the Gospel of John, that, uh, that John very well could have been the person who was very closest to Jesus in this world. He's noted as being the disciple whom Jesus loved. They had a special, close relationship. And remember that they had the 12 disciples, but there was also an inner circle within those disciples, which was John and James' brother and the apostle Peter. 
that participated in particular aspects of the ministry of Jesus that the other guys were not included. And so this is a very special gospel. It's written by maybe that person who was very closest to Jesus as he lived here in this world, who shared a very common and deep love uh, with, with our Lord. You see John the Baptist mentioned here in a couple of spots. Uh, and I'm not really, I'm not even going to get into John the Baptist at this point because uh, in, in verses 6 through 8, John the Baptist is mentioned. And then as you get further in the prologue, John the Baptist comes up again. So what we're going to do next week, and we're, we're going to study and look into what purpose and what role John the Baptist played in all of this, all as a joint thing. So I'm just I'm going to read through, uh, all right, already did, you know, certain, it, John is mentioned in, in verse uh, 6, and then he's picked up again later on. Uh, so we're going to wait and hold off on that, uh, just to save a little bit of time. I want to talk a little bit more this morning about uh, well, some of the, a couple of things theologically w- that we need to glean from this pro- prologue, two things in particular I would say that really stand out. One of those is that word is God, that God is the word, that God is the one who speaks forth. And also that the word is light. And what I want to do first of all this morning is speak a little bit more about Light. Uh, most of you know that I was a scientist a long time before I was a believer. That I've actually taught college-level science for several years and, uh, and all of that. I've always had a great love for science, and not just biology. My degree is in biology, but I love science in general, which includes chemistry. You know, when I first started studying chemistry, I hated it, but, but eventually I got to the point where it really was the love of my life. I'd rather teach chemistry than teach anything else, uh, and that sort of thing. I do know a little bit about physics and et cetera, and I just want to talk about light this morning a little bit as we begin Uh, Because we understand that what is being said here is that Jesus is this light. And consider what light does. It brings sense into darkness. And I want to challenge us with a couple of things this morning. Sometimes we have the idea that, that darkness has some sort of power over light. As we said last week, that Jesus is the light, but we're also called the light of the world. So there's a sense in which Jesus is the light, and what Jesus' role is being that light is to reveal God, to make God known to people, to manifest God in reality in a way that we can see it, we can hear it, we can understand it. He also says in the, in the Gospel of John, or in the Gospel of Matthew, that we are light. So as we become believers, we become almost, in essence, conduits through which the, which the light of God shines forth into the fallen and broken and dark world around us. 
But coming from my science background, I look upon this a little bit differently than maybe some people have. Now, sometimes we talk about the darkness overcoming the light. Even the Bible alludes to that sort of thing at times. But I want us to understand some fundamental things. And one of those things is that darkness is simply the absence of light. Period. That's all it is. If you want to get technical, light is a form of what's called electromagnetic energy or radiation. It is a reality. Darkness is nothing. <laughs> there is nothing. I mean, that's what it is. Darkness is nothing. That's all you can say about it. And the reason I bring this up is because sometimes we, we talk about it, and even the Bible sometimes alludes to this idea that the darkness can overcome light. And what I want to tell you this morning is darkness can never overcome light. It has not the power, has not the ability to do that. Darkness is nothing. Nothing at all. The only thing darkness is the absence of light. Period. Darkness has absolutely no power over light, but light has absolute power over darkness. According to Scripture, darkness is the condition that natural man finds himself under since the fall of sin. It's also the condition of the world because the world was created for man and as man goes, so the world goes. One of the points I want to make this morning is this, is that when the world appears to be growing darker, it's not because the light's being extinguished or that the darkness has any power over the light. It's becoming darker because the light is lessening in its intensity. In other words, the light is receding and therefore the darkness seems to be advancing. And that's the only circumstance in which that sort of thing can actually take place. In other words, what I'm telling you is this, is ultimately the world of darkness around us has no power over us. The light of Christ that is in us has and can is the only thing that will overcome the darkness of man's sin and its effects on the cosmos around us. What I'm telling you essentially is this, is that when you are granted the light of Christ, there is nothing that can drive it from you. Nothing can drive it from you.
Sometimes we think the world has power over us. And in some sense it does in some ways, but ultimately we need to remember that the earth, the world, the darkness has ultimately no power over you and I at all. None. In verse 10, he was in the world and the world did not know him. We understand that John's talking here about Jesus. Jesus came on a mission. The light came into the world on a mission. And that mission was not to save everyone. And we understand this, that if it was the mission to save absolutely everyone that ever breathed the air or ever lived, that that would have been what was, would be accomplished. And we understand that that was God, not God's intention in it at all. In verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. As you read the Gospels and you read the epistles, what you see is this, is that even though there's a sense in which the principal and primary object of Christ coming to the world was the people that we would call Israel in, in some sense. We understand this. Uh, that there were many, many of the Jewish people who did not receive Jesus Christ. Right? As a matter of fact, we know this, that there were some people. Were there some Jews who did receive Jesus? Yes, there were. All the disciples were Jews. And there were other people, lots of other people. We don't know how many exactly, but there were people who, who heard the gospel preached by Jesus and they responded to it and they came to faith in Christ. But we know at the same time that there was, there was a, a, a good number, if not a majority or even a vast majority of those people that, that the light was sent forth to who did not receive it. As sad as that is, and how many Jewish people today are still waiting and looking for the Messiah? Still waiting. Still looking. When the Messiah's already come. I just want to remind us this morning. That there is something that is absolutely necessary and required for any sinner to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is before we will do that, before we can even do that, that we must be born again. John chapter 3, you must be born again. In other words, as we look on the circumstances, as we look upon the circumstances historically that Jesus entered into, we need to understand something, and that is that every person that has ever been born is a sinner, estranged and alienated from God. 
We have not the ability, any of us, to choose the light of ourselves. That we must, in fact, be born first, born anew by God. He's the only one that can do that. We cannot do that ourselves. He is the one who has allowed and enabled us to receive the light of Christ. If he had not done that, none of us would have come to faith in Jesus. And because we know that is true, we can also have confidence that once we do know Christ, that we don't have to worry about falling away. You understand that that is the only place that we can have assurance of our salvation. In other words, really believe and honestly know that we cannot lose our salvation once we've gained it. Because there's enough of a vestige of sin even in the very best of us that it were for not for the power of God continuing to work within us, we would flee from Jesus at some point. He's the one who's laid hold of us. He's the one who keeps us on course. He's the one that keeps us in a place of being saved. But we understand that we live in a fallen world. That there are a lot of people out there who are not believers in Jesus Christ. They don't know him. There's still people in this world who have never in their whole life even heard of him. There are people in this world who will never hear the gospel in their whole life. So there were many people in the, in the days of Jesus who were confronted with Jesus. Can you imagine standing before Jesus and listening to him teach and listening to him pray? There were many people who heard the words from his mouth. Many people who saw what he did. But because of the stubbornness and the darkness of their own human heart, even then they rejected him. You see, we're not just a little fallen in sin. We are really, really, really fallen in sin. The fact of the matter is we all, it's not that we just need a Savior a little bit, but you and I, every person, needs a Savior to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. To do for us, let's say quite frankly, we're not even willing or desiring to do for ourselves. In that lies assurance of salvation, and that's the only place you can have it. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who were what? They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you are that person, who do you have to thank for it? Not yourself. In any way, shape, or form. You have God in His mercy to thank for your salvation. Absolutely every bit of it. Because He broke you, He brought you to your knees, and He didn't leave you there. He lifted you up in the light of Christ. And he laid his claim on you. He made you his very own. Because he has loved you since before the foundations of the world. And he has done everything necessary to lay claim to you. To make you his. So have you been born again? Jesus says this very plainly in John chapter 3, that unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So the question is, have you? Have you changed? Being born again in every case means being different. Being transformed. Being a different person than you were before. John Wesley, strangely, when he was reading Martin Luther's commentary on the epistle, writes these words. While he was describing the change that God's words are in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did not trust in Christ. Christ alone for, I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin. That's John Wesley, who is not noted for being extremely on the reform school of things. But John Wesley saying there that there came a time in my life when God saved me. Some of you know when you were born again. You experienced that. There's a sense in which I do. It wasn't necessarily what a lot of people thought it would be and that sort of thing, but, but after years of struggling and digging and studying, reading the Bible from cover to cover and then starting all over again and reading it from cover to cover, after all of that, one morning... I got up, it was a Saturday morning, and I think I was home, and usually what I did on Saturday mornings, I used to make pancakes for the kids, and that sort of thing. But I walked into the kitchen, and I had an experience 
very similar to what John Wesley did. It hit me like a ton of bricks, and that is, I actually believe this hogwash now. I actually believe the sorts of things that I used to ridicule other people for believing, thinking that they were just simple-minded, stupid idiots who, who were following after a fantasy. If there was a moment when I was born again, that's when it was. I knew. I knew that Jesus was real. I knew that he was the Lord of all. And I knew I had been grossly wrong my whole lifetime. And I knew that I had no part in making it happen. He did it. If you believe there was a time when you were born again by God, not by yourself. That should really be very helpful, the manner in which we deal with other people. You need to understand that other people don't have the power to make themselves Christians. Just like you don't. Just like you didn't. The thing about it is, is we never know when and where God's going to act. We never know when and where he's going to act. That's all up to him. What we typically do is we go through life looking at people and say, you know what, so-and-so is really a nice person. It would, they would make a great Christian. As a matter of fact, they look almost like a Christian already. Even though they don't know Christ. There are these good, caring people, you know, and they seem to love other folks and not to be angry and cantankerous and, you know, this, that, and the other. They just look so much like a Christian. I just, you know, you know, whatever. But let me just tell you something. Sometimes God saves those people, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes God, more often, it seems, saves those people that no one thinks he would save. Because when he does that, guess what? Who gets all the glory and credit for it? He does. <laughs> <laughs> Not those people. And this, this is very helpful to all of us, and that is if we remember this, that if we believe, we believe for one reason, it's because God in his grace and mercy has enabled us to do that. That should be one of the foundation stones upon our whole perspective of life and everything lies and it will make our life very different our approach to life will be very different if we always remember that simple truth verse 14 John says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us remember the word is God in the beginning was the word and the word was with God the word was God that's one of the foundation stones for our doctrine of the Trinity. We understand that Jesus is human, but at the same time, Jesus is Almighty God.
Like we said before, that uh, the, 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 the Jesus had these 12 disciples, but he also had this inner circle of John and James and Peter. And John and James and Peter actually experienced some things with Jesus. The other guys didn't. They weren't included. In other words, John can speak to some of these things in a manner, in a way that eight of the other disciples or Nine of the other disciples can't. Because Jesus has made his reality more known to John than he did to the other guys. To John and to James and Peter. One of the most impressive things that happened to those three guys was, was when Jesus took them and only them along with him up into the, onto that Mount of Transfiguration. Peter writes in the second epistle, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when uh, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about his experience that he shared with with, uh, with Peter and James, his brother. Sometimes we wonder why it was that John and, and, and Peter seemed to be the ones who led the charge very often. It's probably because they knew. They knew more matter-of-factly than the other guys of the truth and the reality of who Jesus was. It does help to see, right? It does help to hear when it comes to believing things. They saw. They heard. And I would imagine it was one of the things that Peter was thinking about when he was led to the cross of crucifixion. Wouldn't it be nice to have been there? You ever think about that? It certainly would make it easier to believe, wouldn't it? That Jesus is the Son of God, if you had that same kind of experience that, that these three guys had on the Mount of Transfiguration. And not only that, they got to see Elijah and Moses and listen to them talking. Verses 16 through 18, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God that was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Grace. You understand that grace is the key to understanding everything. The sad thing is grace is something that's not even mentioned that often. And you've heard me define grace as being 
totally, absolutely, completely unmerited favor freely granted to someone who does not deserve it at all. That's what grace is. And if, you, if you're saved, you've received that grace. In other words, as Christians, we do not at all get what we deserve. We do not at all get what's coming to us. What we get instead is God's grace. Sometimes I think we, that we, we have the idea, I think, that grace is a one-time thing, that God gives you grace to believe, and that's the end of the story. But I'd say that's not the end of the story, that God is infusing you with grace forever. And let me tell you, that has to be true. Why? Because even as we're saved, we are yet not perfect or purified, are we? So what I'm telling you is, is we needed grace to be saved in the first place, but we need grace also to keep us saved. That's because sin still lives and breathes in all of us. Which means we need a constant, unceasing infusion of God's grace. Can you say this morning that you have received grace upon grace and you know it is true? You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. God has shown you pity and mercy when you deserved everything but that. The law was given through Moses. And how many people today, even today, believe that they saved themselves by keeping the law? When the Bible actually declares over and over again that that is the standard by which we are measured, but at the same time, none of us keeps it. None of us comes close to keeping it. We are all lawbreakers. And I would go so far as to say that we break God's law with every breath that we take even where we are now. Is God merciful? <laughs> you bet he is. And when it comes to every one of us, our understanding of that ought to be myself. God has been merciful to me. It's not merciful to everybody, but he has been merciful to me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. But he loves me nonetheless. And he has done everything necessary to make that a reality, including sending his son into this world to do for me what I can't do. And even honestly, what I don't even want to do. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God the Father sinning from his side to do what had to be done.
Salvation doesn't cost you one thing. Well, maybe pride, maybe self-centeredness, things like that. There's a sense in which it costs God everything. So does God love you? Does God care about you? Is God on your side? Is God looking out for you? Even though you have not deserved it at all. Should that have any effect upon how we look at other people? Should that have any effect upon how we deal with other people? It's got everything to do with those things. Everything. Well, next week we are going to look more into the ministry of John the Baptist and how that relates to Christ. So let me ask you something. Are you encouraged this morning? Are you discouraged? If you're discouraged, blame me, because you shouldn't be. <laughs> you really should not be. You should be very, very encouraged by the things that we've talked about this morning. Because God loves you, and God has saved you, and he will keep you saved. You are his forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray.